I, of the various times in history where if, it could, if there was the possibility to do just to be a fly on the wall, this is one of those moments. This is one of those moments, the ones that we're going to look at today. Because the, room, the tension in the room was thick. There were two very distinct sides. And the stakes were really, really high. And the decision made at that very first church council meeting would not only define uh, the faith of our ancestors, our, our, our faith ancestors, for those of us who are not ethnically Jewish, those of us who would be considered Gentiles. We come from some, some ethnic heritage that is, not, that is non-Jewish. It not only defined faith for them, it defines faith for us today. This moment was huge. If in, we're in a series in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, okay? So see if you can find Acts chapter 15. Get your paper Bibles out, roll up your sleeves, put on your thinking caps, pull out that little glow-in-the-dark Bible that you keep in your pocket. Uh, you can put the Bible app on there, jump onto our guest network if you need to. You can download something actually good onto your phone and, and join me in Acts chapter 15, okay? Now, we've been going through the book of Acts, and this, this is, you know, the, the book of Acts basically starts as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, and people start coming to Christ, and the disciples are filled with this renewed energy and power, and, and these tax collectors and fishermen and just basically a, a group of nobodies start to make a profound difference in the world. And this persecution strikes the church in Jerusalem. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this, how, how then Christians started scattering in all these different directions. And as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, the, the gospel has been spreading so much that, it, that um, well, activity starts to center in the city of Antioch. Let's put a, a map up on the screen just so you can kind of see where that is. So, down towards the right, you see Jerusalem. About 300 miles north of Jerusalem is the, is the ancient city of Antioch, currently in modern-day Turkey. And um, so one of the strange things that's happened, we can take the map down if you, if you like. One of the strange things that happened in that point is, oh, hi there, guys. I, I already warned the media team I'm going to be a bit of a bear for them today, but is that... Um, is that the, the gospel was moving forth with, with power, and the Gentile churches were apparently moving, like growing quite a bit faster than the churches that were ethnically Jewish. So all these people are coming to Christ, and like for most of us, our faith ancestors, most of our faith ancestors, they were not ethnically Jewish. So they're coming from all these different cultural backgrounds within the Roman Empire. And... So much activity had been happening up, especially in the area around Antioch, that some, um, some Christians from Jerusalem traveled up to Antioch. And, well, they, it, they started to ask the question that, well, it's going to sound very familiar to you. Because if you've ever had a hard experience with church, or a hard experience growing up, I can all but guarantee you this was one of the questions that was right at the core of your difficult church experience. So, have you found Acts chapter 15? 
You got them in your little phones? Got them on your little, you got your Bible. Some of you got your paper Bibles out. I respect that. That's good because they never crash. They always work. The power is continuous in the paper Bibles. The power is temporary in the, in the, in the digital ones. Anyways, so let's pick things up. Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, so 300 miles north, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught to Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas, who'd been church planters up in that area now, were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem, 300 miles south from there, along with some other believers, to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted The the news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 5. Because, you know, when good things are happening, there's going to be criticism. Can I get an amen? Amen. All the time. When there's good things happening, there's always going to be criticism. Then some of the believers stood up. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So here's the issue that's at stake. Is, um, well, so so of course, circumcision is is the issue that's being talked about because that's the entry right into being Jewish or converting to Judaism. But along with that are the laws of Moses. That's some, some 613 laws that we see throughout the Old Testament. And of course, um, by this point, there's all these sort of cultural you know, kind of laws and things that were intended to help you keep the 613 main laws. And in essence... What, what, this, what this group of people were, were saying, and because I want to make sure that we, that we, that we view it compassionately. Because these people weren't crazy. They were just passionate. And unfortunately, in this case, they're wrong. But, they're, but, they're, but they weren't crazy. Here, here's, what they were, here's what they were saying, in essence. If they want to follow Jesus, meaning the Gentiles, if those Gentile folks want to follow Jesus, then they need to learn how to live more like Jesus. Live like Jesus. That would make a good slogan, don't you think? (laughs) Live like Jesus. And Jesus was Jewish. So Jesus followed the kosher laws. Jesus followed the Jewish calendar. Jesus kept the Sabbath. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to live more like Jesus. You put it that way, it makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? Now, of course, in, in, the, in, in those laws, there were a number of things. Uh, the 613 laws, there are some laws that you would probably still be, well, we'd still be in total agreement with. Ten Commandments, for example. But there's also all these other laws in there that were more cultural, like uh, you can't use a razor on your beard. 
Uh, you can't eat the sinew from a thigh because it's connected to the story of Jacob and when his hip was displaced and he became Israel. So there's all these different laws, all these different laws that defined what it meant to be Jewish. And, and Jesus did live all those laws because he was, he was, because he was Jewish. Doesn't it make sense that if someone's going to follow Jesus, they need to act more like Jesus? And this question probably starts to sound pretty familiar to us because for most of us, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in our church upbringing or our first kind of experiences with church, yes, it was about Jesus, hopefully at least, Yes, it was about Jesus. But there's all these cultural things that kind of come along with it, too. If you want to be a Christian, well, here's how you need to dress. Here's the styles of music you can or cannot listen to. If you're going to be a Christian, here's, here's, here's the habits you cannot indulge in. Now, just, just so we can talk a little bit. What were some of the... What were some of the uh, customs or habits that uh, in, in your church history you picked up on? Like things that you were told. Because we don't smoke and we don't chew. We don't go out with girls who do. <laughs> Got some of those? You don't wear too much makeup. No, you can't wear too much makeup. That's right. Thank you, Marsha. What else? You don't wear jeans to... Oops. Yeah. <clears throat> Is there anything about Seahawks jerseys in that? No, no. I understand. No, gotcha. Okay, yeah. All right, got So there's these things. There, it's Jesus, but there's also these cultural, behavioral expectations that come along with it. Always play the organ because God only likes organ music. God doesn't like drums. Right? Or, or pianos. Okay, what else? No, don't dance. Yeah, no dancing. I heard that. That's right. Okay. No, yeah, that's right. You can get yourself in trouble dancing. Women had to wear hats on their heads. Hat, hats on their heads? Yeah. yeah. And gloves. And, and how long could your skirt be? Oh, it had to be at least down below the knee. Below the knee. Always below the knee. Some, some, some of you are like, that seems, that seems scandalous. You were like mid-thigh, right? Okay. <laughs> So we've got, we, we were raised with all these cultural expectations and on some level, I mean, they, they weren't, I mean, they, they weren't, uh, let's assume at least they were well-intentioned, right? So we need to, we need to approach this uh, issue and what the Pharisee, what the, the Pharisees now converted to Christianity, what, the, what these Pharisees are saying Because what the church does at this moment, it, it blows my mind. It's big. It's really, really big. Let's keep reading, okay? So the apostles and the elders, they met, verse 6, to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. 
God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting a yoke on the, on, on the necks of the Gentiles, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the, what's that word? Grace. grace. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are, that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James, this is the brother of Jesus, by the way, because James, like the brother of John, remember from the 12, he'd already been martyred by then. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Where am I? Here we are. 13, thank you. When he finished, James, the brother of Jesus, stood up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And so we start quoting from Amos chapter 9. Okay. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. So in other words, James is saying that, that if, you, if you read the scriptures, this has always been part of God's plan. God has always intended, always intended for all people to be included in the good news of Jesus. You know, if we read him all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, part of the Abrahamic covenantal promise that God speaks to Abraham and says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So he says, this has been part of God's plan all along. And then we get to what, I, what the main point, the main point for today. And I think this, this, is, this, is, this is huge. It is my judgment, verse 19, James says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Then we go to verse 20. Instead, we should write them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, so that's the first thing, from sexual immorality, that's the second thing, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood, that's the third thing. We'll come to, as we'll look at that, those, those are connected. Now, um, one of the reasons I love that we have connection groups uh, is because uh, I, I would love to actually, if, if I could, I would probably spend two or three uh, weeks just on this one little piece here because it's vitally important that we understand what the early church was talking about 
here. So I hope in your connection groups you can actually go a little bit further with this um, in, the, in the study material. I put some like reference verses and things like that. I hope you'll open them up. I hope you'll read them together. I hope you'll talk these things through. Don't just take what I say in these next moments as gospel truth. I mean, test it against the scriptures. So, so, so The early Jews had 613 laws that defined every part of, of, of cultural life. That was the law of Moses, 613 laws. How many remained at this point? Three. Three. I hope we can understand for a moment the gravity of this moment, like the importance of this moment. Of people who have been defined by all these standards for their culture, how you dress, how you eat, the, how, you, how you shape, shape and schedule your week, what you do on various days, how far you can walk on various days, how you bake things, how, how, you, how you sew clothing. I mean, it was, these were the things that marked their culture, just like it marks any culture. And he said, they said, in essence, we are willing to let almost all of that go so that it does not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to Jesus. Every festival. The, how they practice Sabbath, their food laws, their clothing laws, all of it, gone. Nothing wrong with following those, those laws, nothing wrong with practicing those things, but we, we will not make them a requirement. We will not expect them to become more like us so they can follow Jesus. You think about it, every time in Christian history when we've done international missions badly, it's because we've actually practiced that. They need to become more like us so that, so that they can follow Jesus just like us. Rather than saying, like they do in this moment, all they need to do is follow Jesus and we're going to follow Jesus together. So it's important first to note like how, how much of, the, of, the, of their, their cultural heritage they were willing to hold lightly to in order to include the Gentiles. And it's also important that we take a look at the things that they chose to hold tightly to. And that's the next metaphor I want us to spend a little bit of time with today. There are some things in the Bible that we are meant to hold loosely to and the other things that we need to hold tightly to. So let's look at the three things that the early church, in this moment at least, now the, and I don't believe this is comprehensive, but, it, but at this particular moment, they said this is what the church, this is what people need to be thinking about. These are the behavioral changes that we expect to see happening as somebody follows Jesus. Let's take a look at the three. First thing was this, food polluted by idols. 
Now, if you're doing any reference work with this, look especially at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, because we, we see the Apostle Paul working these things out in the early church. Like, what does it mean to, to uh, abstain from food that is polluted by idols? And why does it matter? Like in chapter 10, and I wish I could spend more time with this, he says, basically, if, if you don't know where the food is coming from, it's not a big deal. If somebody offers you food, you go ahead and eat it. But if you know that this food has been associated with the worship of idols, don't. There's a principle there. There's a principle there. That God is the one that we worship above all others. That we're going to honor God with our lives. Oh, that's interesting. We're, we're not quite there yet. We are not quite there yet. That's, wow. But, but man, you came in with such class. Okay, give me about another five minutes. All right. <laughs> you, can, you should thank him later. It's like, he's going to speed him up. I'm like, yeah. Yes, he is. He's, gonna do a, he's doing a great job. So from food polluted by idols, that we will honor God above all things. Secondly, from sexual immorality. Now, every time you see the phrase sexual immorality in the New Testament, you think of it as a hyperlink to Genesis 18, or to, to Leviticus 18, rather. Think of it as a hyperlink. The, the, the sexual immorality ends up getting defined back in the Old Testament in Leviticus 18. And the heart of it is this, is that, is that God planned marriage to be something that is good, like Right back in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will be one flesh. That God invented human sexuality. That God invented marriage, and he designed it for good. He designed it to be between one man and one woman who are in a lifetime relationship. And so Leviticus 18 starts to spell out exactly what that means. And it includes a whole, quite a number of things that we still whole, wholeheartedly um, hold to today. Things like, no, you don't get to marry your mother. You, it's not okay. You don't get to marry your daughter. No, that is not okay. You don't get to marry your granddaughter. No, that is not okay. There's also others that are culturally challenged. There's prohibitions there on same-sex intercourse, for example. And it is interesting to note that, that as these, as these uh, instructions are, are, are going out to the Gentile church, as you become a follower of Jesus, you will, uh, you will increasingly align yourselves with biblical values of marriage. It's essentially what's being said here. As this is going out into the Gentile church, that the Gentiles who were hearing it were in a culture where, it, well, first century, like, Roman sexual norms will sound ex so familiar to us today. That back in first century Rome, it was pretty anything goes by this point. And if you don't believe me, because I don't necessarily expect you to believe me, and by the way, there's all sorts of scholarly debate on this, here's one of the ways that, that we can know that is... Um, now, I don't recommend that you, that you do this web search with children in the room, but, for example, if you do a search and you, and you look at the frescoes of Pompeii, the statues 
of Pompeii. And why that's significant is that in AD 78, so just a few years after like this passage, as the early church is growing, there was this uh, you know, massive um, uh, volcanic explosion and a Roman city was essentially preserved under all this ash. We have this moment where, where a Roman city, like it, it's, it's kind of in, like a, a time capsule. And maybe you've seen the, like the statues of, of Pompeii and how people were almost like they were frozen in position. It's really eerie and amazing. And, and in those archaeological digs, as they're unburying these houses and public areas, there is some extremely graphic artwork that includes all sorts of things. That that um, and this is why I mean, be careful in your search. That w- would be probably today be considered quite pornographic, including all sorts of sexual activity that is becoming increasingly common today that apparently back in the Roman in the Roman cities was as it was here as it is increasingly becoming here was normalized like this is this is this is this is on the on the options for 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 sexual behavior and it's all okay it's important for us to to know that historically because then when we read things like in 1 Corinthians, like in uh, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, or even 1 Thessalonians, we start to understand why Paul, as he's writing to these churches, and like church in Corinth where they have the, uh, the temple of Aphrodite, for example. You know, this church in Corinth, boy, he has to explain to them very, very carefully, okay, folks, this is why it is not okay for you to have sexual relationships with the temple prostitute. Like, he has to explain that to them. Because it was normal. He had to explain those things. And so for a Gentile to become a Christian was also to put them on a journey where their sexual behavior is going to be different from the culture that surrounds them. So there were some cultural things that that the Gentiles were not asked to change. Their food, their dress code, their their style of music, their... Notice there's nothing in here about politics either. But there are some things that... The early, even in this moment, they're saying, no, there are some things where if you are following Jesus, you will live differently. That's, that's the second one. Let's take a look at the third one. From the meat of strangled animals and from blood. So if you're doing some reference work with that, I encourage you to take a look at things like Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, where, um, where the first prohibitions about, um, uh, about how, you, how you slaughter animals comes into play. And, um, you know, Romans chapter 14 as well, verses, uh, verses 14 through 23. And, and at the core of this, and, and I urge you to go deeper on your own with some of these things, at the core of it is this idea of a, of a fundamental respect for life. See, the Jews believed that the life was in the blood. 
And so to, to, to treat the blood of an animal that you are slaughtering to eat, to, to treat that, that, that blood disrespectfully by not allowing the blood to drain from the animal first was, in essence, to, to, to try to ingest their life. Not just eat their body, which is appropriate, but to try to ingest their life. It's also important to note that even though that some, of, some of the eating meat of strangled animals, eating, eating blood, that was fairly normal in the Roman Empire, that, that if you're trying to get Greeks, or people who are, who are, are raised in Greek culture to, to share a meal with their Jewish brethren, if one of them was eating blood sausage and the other one could never imagine eating such a thing, for example, um, potlucks would be almost impossible. <laughs> and it's important that Christians eat together. It's important that we treat one another like family. And if that means giving up a few of your favorite items, that's okay. But even deeper than that is this idea of the respect for life. If the life is in the blood, then we never treat blood casually. Now, I believe it is completely appropriate, for example, for Christians to receive a blood transfusion. That's blood as a gift. But I think we need to be even careful still today about how we treat blood. That even though we eat animals, how we treat the animals we eat still matters. We have respect for life. It's interesting that the only time in the Bible that we are actually told to ingest blood, well, it's, it's from the lips of our Savior, Jesus, who says, drink my blood. Now, we do that symbolically at, at, the, at the communion meal. But see, what's that, what that's saying is that, see, I'm not going to try to ingest the life of a cow. I'm not going to try to ingest the life of a pig. I'm not going to try to ingest the life of a chicken. But Lord Jesus, may your life live in me. When we come to the table and we receive symbolically the blood of Christ. We don't believe that it, we don't, we're not, this isn't transubstantiation. We're not saying it physically changes. But there is a spiritual significance to that gift. Jesus, may your life, the blood that you shed on my behalf, may your life, may it live inside me. I do not take that lightly. So 613 laws become three. And the church moves forward. I want us to spend just a few moments with, with this thought. So, so don't make it difficult. Don't make it difficult. You know, there are some things that God calls us to hold to tightly. And there's other things that God calls us to hold to lightly. 
And wisdom is knowing the difference between the two. And as, as much as, hey, well done. Got you, man. That's good. Yeah. I got you. You got my back. I know. That's good. This is when you know, this is, you know, I'm about to land this thing. Some things we hold too lightly, other things we hold too tightly. There are, we need to know the difference. And, it, and as much as that principle might sound easy, in, like just as, a, as an isolated principle, we all know that to actually live this out, it gets quite messy, quite complicated. There are some things that matter and a whole lot of things that don't. But and let me see your eyes. Let me see your eyes. I'm almost done, I promise. But I need need to see your eyes because this matters. If we are going to be a church that passes on a robust faith to the next generation, we need some Acts 15 wisdom. Because not everything that we do in terms of how we do church is something we need to hold tightly to. Hold tightly to Jesus. Hold tightly to marriage. Amen? Hold tightly to respect for life. Hold tightly to the desire for for Christians from various cultures to be able to meet together and eat together. Those things are timeless. Those things matter. And a whole bunch of other things don't. Now, um... One, one little personal note. See, uh, many of you know I'm in, a, I'm, I'm in the early stages of a doctoral program. And so I've been, I've been under a, a mentor by the name of uh, Leonard Sweet, studying what's called semiotics. My doctoral dissertation is going to be on the, on the topic of, of why is it that an increasing number of kids who are raised in Christian homes and in Christian families are not, are not maintaining their faith? into adulthood. Personally, I believe this is one of the most important and pressing issues of our time. See, I totally understand how someone that didn't know Jesus would hear the gospel and respond because Jesus changes everything. He changes our lives from the inside out. What I have a hard time understanding and I want to understand this more is is how so many kids today who have seen at least some snapshot of the gospel. They've seen mom and dad or some version of family trying to live it out. They've experienced church and every church is broken. Every church is imperfect. Every church has conflict. We're all a mess. And in every church, there is something. Every Bible-believing, Bible Jesus-following church, there's still something good. They've seen something and yet so many walk away. And I have, a, I have a hunch that somewhere as we dig into the data, as we have the interviews, as we look at those things, we're going to see some Acts 15 issues. We have got to have wisdom and discernment about what to hang on to and what to let go of. Don't make it Difficult for people who are turning to God. Now, I don't pretend to know exactly what those things are. 
But I sure hope we can be on a journey trying to discern some of those things together because the stakes are so high. If you are a Christian parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, my hunch is one of the things you care about more than anything else, anything else, is that your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids know Jesus. Right? Don't make it difficult. Don't make it difficult. Lord, give us discernment to know what to hold on to tightly and what to hold to loosely. And it's probably a really long list. Hold tightly to Jesus. He is still the hope of the world. Lord, I won't make it difficult. Help me not make it difficult. Give me wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom.